0: Welcome to the podcast. Eric is the autobiography of my grandfather, Eric Langridge. His story opens up in Central London in 1925. In our last episode, we discovered Eric's truancy, the trouble he and his brother Lionel often got into, their move into a new home, and then sadly the day when his mum would leave and then never come back. In this episode, we discover that as difficult as his life had been, it was about to get worse. In the meantime, we carried on as badly as ever, and Dad was at his wits' end to know how to deal with us. People kept coming to the house offering to help Dad, so that he might be able to cope with four children. But Dad was quite adamant that he could manage. If only we could have known what we were letting ourselves in for. Firstly, our eldest brother Don left home permanently. Before, we would see him on weekends or during his holidays, but this time we never saw him again. We carried on as usual, going to school or not going to school, getting lost and causing yet more visits from the authorities, And then one day, Dad told us that our two sisters were going to live in the country. It would be many, many years before we would ever see them again. Later, we were brought home in a black Mariah, a police van. It was such a disgrace, and all the neighbors were watching. Dad was so embarrassed, and he really didn't know what to do with us. Something very unusual happened on another day. It was a Monday, but Dad actually took us to the Manor Place baths, and we had to have a real good scrub with Dad in charge. He also had brought our Sunday clothes with him, and we had to dress up in those. Then he told us we were going on a tram visit to some people in a very big house in Kennington. The building was huge, and inside it had polished floors, old pictures on the walls, and a very wide staircase. We went upstairs and had to sit outside on a bench while Dad went in. It was some time later that we were told that we were going to live in the country with lots and lots of other boys. We looked forward to this new adventure. Little did we know what was in store for us. Finally, the day we had longed for arrived, and we were very excited. Dad got us up, particularly early that morning, which was no problem. We were so anxious to begin our outing. We had to have another strip wash and put on our best clothes. After a good breakfast, we left the flat to go to the underground Victoria mainline. Suddenly, the underground was not the dark, dingy place where we used to spend our time. It was a much happier place today. We just could not contain ourselves, and Dad had to keep a close eye on us to make sure we didn't get lost in the crowds. Victoria Station was a fascinating place for us, full of activity and lots of people. Some wore uniforms of different styles. There were station staff, some with gold braid, soldiers, policemen and postmen with barrowloads loads of mail to be put on the trains. Dad said we had arrived early and had plenty of time. And so we walked up and down the platforms, looking at the steam engines and the very posh Pullman coaches. It really was an eye-opener, something we had never seen before, and all added to the great adventure we were beginning. Later, Dad took us over to the bookstall and bought us some sweets and a comic each. We then went to the concourse area and just stood around watching people go by. Lionel and I had no idea why we were just hanging about for so long. Eventually... A lady came up to Dad and asked if we were the Langridge family. Dad and the lady chatted for a while, and then he introduced us to her. He said that this lady was going to take us into the country. We thought she was very kind and was helping Dad by taking care of us for the journey. We had no reason to think otherwise because she was so friendly to us. We were quite prepared to leave Dad behind and go on the train with her. There was no one else in the compartment with us, and so we were able to stand at the door window and wait for the train to leave. As the train started to leave, we kissed Dad goodbye and waved to him. We decided to have a corner seat opposite each other and started chatting with great excitement. Suddenly, this woman said, ''Right, sit still and be quiet. Put those sweets away and sit up straight.'' What happened? This nice lady was now bossing us about and being very nasty. I looked out of the window and told my brother I could see horses and cows, but I was told to shush. It seemed as if the bottom of our world had dropped away and we decided we didn't like this lady. It was worse for Lionel and he started to weep. The lady got very cross and told him to stop immediately. We were both very frightened. The train was speeding through the beautiful countryside, but we didn't see it anymore. Our eyes were welling up with tears. Our survival instincts were foremost, and we felt we had to keep an eye on each other. We both were determined not to give in and cry. After what seemed to be miles of the journey, we stopped at a little station in Sussex. We weren't interested in the train ride anymore, and anyway, this lady would be leaving us soon. There was a man standing at the station who started to walk toward us. He was a big man and had his trousers tucked into his socks. They were plus fours. He spoke to the lady for a few moments and was eyeing us up and down as he spoke. Then he said goodbye to her. He said, ''Right, come on lads, let's go to the car and go for a ride.'' That's better, we thought, and trotted off quite cheerfully, carrying our little bags. It was a nice ride from the station, through the little town and into the countryside. Soon we turned right into a gateway, where he stopped and blew the car car horn. Suddenly, as if by magic, the two huge green gates opened and we drove in. As we went through, I could see that two little boys had opened the gates and then disappeared as soon as the car went through. We drove up to a huge building and stopped at the front door. The man said, Right, get out and stand there while I put the car away. As we stood there I could see that we were in some sort of a playground surrounded by a very high brick wall. And then the man came back. Follow me, he said. And then he took us into the building to a large hall. Stand there, he said, and I'll fetch someone to help you. But now his tone of voice had changed and he sounded grumpy. Off he went again and came back with two ladies. One was very tall and the other short and dumpy. They both wore a blue dress with a white apron and a white cloth on their heads. They looked like nurses. Having seen us, they walked away and we followed them into a small room, an office. There was a table with a large book opened on it. This was the register. After taking our details, he introduced us to the ladies. The tall one was matron and the dumpy one was the assistant matron known as Miss Polly. They both looked at us searchingly and asked us our names. We were totally bemused and apparently spoke too quietly for their liking. We were immediately pounced on and told to speak up. He then told us he was the master and we were to call him sir. He said, my wife is matron and you will call her madam and the other is Miss Polly. Do you understand? We said yes, but he said, yes what? Yes, sir, we said. And then the man replied, Right, learn that and don't you forget it. Go with Miss Polly and she will take care of you. We followed her and she took us along a long dark corridor. On one side of the wall was a row of large cupboards, at the side of which was a bin. Right, she said, stopping at the cupboards. Throw your bags in the bin and stand there with your arms outstretched like this. She proceeded to show us how she wanted us to stand. She then opened a cupboard and placed a pair of trousers, a grey shirt and a pair of socks on our arms and gave us a pair of plimsolls to carry. She then said, follow me, and took us out of the corridor into a cold brick room with white tiles. There were lots of toilets down one side with no doors, and urinals along the other wall. Go to the toilet if you want to, and then come in here, she said. We entered another room, white-tiled, and it had four baths in there. She had started running the water and told us to strip off and get in. It was cold water, at least that's how it felt. We were then given a bar of coal tar soap each and told to scrub ourselves all over. She then did our hair. It was so humiliating, and when she did do our hair, she was so rough that she really brought tears to our eyes, and we were so frightened. She finally poured a jug of stuff over our heads, and it smelled very strongly of disinfectant. It stung our head and eyes very badly. We were then told to get out and dry ourselves, and she stood there all the time. When she was satisfied that we were dry, she told us to get dressed. When we had done this, we were told to clean the bath out. It was only then, when we saw ourselves in the mirror, that we realized that we were dressed alike. We then had to follow her again as she took us into another corridor in the main house. We went along a passage with a polished floor and into a big schoolroom. There were school desks in long rows, and at the head of the room was a piano and a big table. There were also very large cupboards again. There were two boys behind each desk, and they all stood up and to attention. We were told that we would have a boy each to look after us, and they would sit us at the desk. We were all told to sit down and be quiet, which we did. In a short while, in he came. There was a deathly hush and a sense of terror in the classroom. He stood behind the table and placed a shoebox there. "Langridges, come out here. He shouted, and up we stood. Come here, he said. Don't stand there like stuffed dummies. We obeyed, but we were petrified. I was nearest, and so he grabbed me by the head and dragged me toward him. He then opened his box and took out a pair of hand clippers and started to shave my head. He was brutal and very rough, and sometimes pulled out hair rather than cutting it. If we flinched, he would whack us on the head with the clippers and told us to stand still. When he finished with me, he then started on Lionel. He was as rough as ever and reduced my brother to tears. Lionel was shaken with fright. We now stood there with all our hair off and shaved close to the skin. We now looked like all the other boys. Then we were told to stand up straight and face the boys. It wasn't easy as we had hair down our backs and it was itching. We were told to speak up and introduce ourselves. My name is Eric, I shouted. And then my brother did the same. My name is Lionel, he said. But it wasn't loud enough and so the master humiliated him again in front of the class. I want you all to make them welcome and I want Michael and Leslie to come out here. Michael, you will take charge of Lionel, and Leslie, you will take charge of Eric. Now go and show them around into their bedrooms. The boys then led us away and out into a corridor until we reached a large wooden staircase. We went upstairs and noticed there were five bedrooms on one floor. He took Lionel first into a small back room where there were six iron beds, and then it was my turn. He took me up to a landing into a much larger room. There were ten beds in there, and each one had a locker by the head of the bed. That's your bed, said Leslie, and this is your locker. You are responsible for a tidy bed at all times, a clean floor space, and a clean and tidy locker. You are not allowed anywhere near another bed or locker. There would be inspections every day, and any mess of the area would be severely punished. Each bed had a brass plate on the wall above the bedhead, and I remember mine was caxton. It was very highly polished, and we were responsible for it. The locker was a small unit with a drawer at the top and a cupboard beneath. In the drawer was a Bible and a prayer book with my name inside the cover. Woe betide us if we damaged them or left them untidy. Each had a bookmark inside, and we were not allowed to turn down the corners of the pages. Leslie then showed us around the other bedrooms until we reached the largest room of all. This was the top boys' room, and it had better beds, different colored walls, and there were no brass plaques. The lockers were also taller. Opposite this room was the master and matron's room. No one saw or entered in there. Miss Polly's room was the other side of the small boy's back bedroom. It was a much smaller room than the master's. Further along was another bathroom with three toilets and two large baths. We went in the back room to see Michael and Leslie. With Lionel, my brother, he showed us his bed, which was made of ugly iron with a mattress, sheet, and a grey blanket. Under the sheet was a rubber mat put there for bedwetters. The rooms were graded according to age, and as each birthday came along, you would be moved from bed to bed until you reached the door, and then you started at the bottom again in another bedroom. This was the last time that I really saw my little brother properly. He was a small boy, and we weren't allowed to mix together. He was there, and I kept an eye on him. But that was all i was able to do we then went back downstairs and back to the classroom we opened our desk and there was a box inside with a pen pencil and rubber eraser inside leslie said these were all mine and i was to guard them jealously the master walked up and down between the desks and gave each of us an exercise book we had to put our name inside the cover and also we were given a home number which we had to memorize Each desk was numbered and arranged in age groups, which meant my little brother was right at the back of the schoolroom. My number was 27, and he said I had to learn it thoroughly, and he would be checking up on me. The master then said our books would become a diary of events and, and an instruction book. Everything would be noted, and we would never knew when he would call on us to repeat any one item. It also contained a list of all of our house duties, which would be added to very often. We also had to write in the weekly menus and learn them by heart. There was a big china mug in my desk, number 27, and a toothbrush and comb. We were allowed to choose a reading book from the shelves to keep in our desk. It had to be a learning book by a big author, like Treasure Island, Robinson Crusoe, or Huckleberry Finn. They had to be kept in immaculate condition. Each boy was entitled to two sheets of paper and an envelope. Leslie explained this was for letter writing once a month, but we were not allowed to seal the envelope. The master checked every letter, so how could we ever tell the truth and complain? He also did the same with letters from home, and if some parents sent money orders, he would remove them, saying they were for all the boys to share. Having impressed upon us again that we were responsible for all our possessions and would be called upon to show that they were always complete, he then told Leslie and Michael to take us to Miss Polly once again. She took us into another large room full of cupboards and boxes, Come here, Eric, she said, and she opened one of the cupboards. I was given a new grey suit, two more grey shirts, and one very white shirt, a new pair of shoes, and two pairs of socks. There was also a large white stiff collar, which I was to learn about later on. The socks were for one pair on, one pair in the locker, and one pair in the wash, and that's how it had to be. The shoes had to be kept spotless, and we were never allowed to scuff the toes. They were for Sunday only. We have boots for school to wear. Go on, she said. Take them to your locker and put them away tidily. The master will inspect them later on. I was totally overawed by it all, and when Leslie said we were to go back to the classroom, room, I thought, oh boy, what next? Well, when we got there, it seemed like a different place. The boys were chattering, laughing, and playing with toys. Leslie explained it was free time, and we were allowed half an hour each day. The boys gathered around and introduced themselves, and judging by their names, they had a lot of brothers there. And whilst they appeared to be happy, their conversation seemed guarded. I noticed that some of the bigger boys left the room, and Leslie said they had gone to do their duties. They were dining room boys. I told Leslie I wanted to go to the toilet. He said he would take me this time, but we were only allowed to go at proper times. I soon learned what that meant and how torturous it would be. He also explained that this was not our proper school. That was up in the village. This was just the room where we spent most of our time, but it was also a very strict learning room. I had no idea what he meant then. It sounded quite ominous. The room had two huge bay windows, the lower one of which was for the small boys to play with their toys. In the other bay was the huge piano and a blackboard and easel. On top of the piano was a big brass bell, and in one cupboard was a pile of sheet music. The desks were in four rows, and I was in the third row, second desk back, so I was in full view of the master, a point that was to become very relevant later on. After a while, one of the boys came into the room and rang the bell. Leslie said that it was our meal time, and we were to file out of the room in size and age order. We formed into a line and marched out of the room along the corridor to the dining room. In the dining room were two rows of long wooden trestle tables with long bench seats on either side we marched inside in order and stood at the side of the seats at the top of the room was a dining table set out with tablecloths silver cutlery a jug and water glass there were also napkins folded into correct order this was the master's table there was a long table just inside the door which had a tray with glasses of water and a cutlery box the dinners were brought in on a huge tray and placed on the table and then in order each table of boys would march up and collect a dinner glass of water, and the cutlery. This went on right to the last boy, and we stood at attention once more until they appeared. The master would then say grace, and we were allowed to sit down and start our meal with no talking. I had no idea what I had on my plate, but Leslie said it was fish and mashed potatoes. It was nothing like any fish I had seen before. It was just a large, watery lump, and the potatoes had discoloration in the juice. There was a black skin on the fish, which looked awful, but we had to eat it all. No one left a bit of food on their plate. They stayed there until their plates were clean. Leslie said we always had fish on Fridays, so I knew what day I had arrived. I ate my dinner, but every mouthful made me choke. It was nasty. We then carried our plates back to the long table and picked up our pudding. All the time we were under the constant glare of the master, and our behavior had to be perfect. It was petrifying. A boy stood to one side of the master's table with a napkin draped across his arm, and when each course was finished, he would clear their table and serve each course. He also kept their glass topped off with water. Leslie explained that this boy was in training and would soon be leaving for domestic service. He was also the senior boy, and we went to him with our problems, but knowing what the outcome would be, not many of us had problems. The pudding was a suet pudding with currants and custard. It was quite nice. When we finished our pudding and had drunk the water, we had to sit up straight, and fold our arms across our chest. We were allowed 25 minutes for our meal times, and if you hadn't finished by then, you had to leave it. If we were hungry, we soon learned to eat up quickly. When time was up, master would tap the side of his plate with a spoon, and we would pick up the remaining crockery, etc., and file out of the room, leaving everything on the long table. Back into the classroom, we sat at our desks, arms folded and not a word spoken. Suddenly, in he charged, and he would yell out names of boys that had to do kitchen duties, washing up and stacking. Every boy had a turn at some time or another, and it was a very strict routine. Small boys would scrape the plates into the pig bin, and then pass them along to the next boy for a pre-wash, and on to another boy for the final wash. The wash-up water was scalding hot, but as Miss Polly was watching, there was no excuse for slackness. Finally, the plates were stacked in drying racks and cutlery in proper order in the boxes, Every now and then Miss Polly would make an inspection, and if she found anything not to her liking, she would return it to the culprit, and he would get a rap on the back of the head. Miss Polly called this a knuckle pie, and it was quite painful. Having washed up, the walls and floors were washed and everything was left spotless. Back to the classroom to sit and wait yet again until he entered. He had a sheet of paper with instructions we had to copy down into our books, He also had a list of misdemeanors, and the culprits were called out for punishment. This was a dreadful shock to me. Fortunately, I was not involved, but when I saw one or two boys get in the cane, I really was frightened. One boy got it for accepting sweets from another boy, and eating them in the school. The master was vicious. He would reach up to his full height, and sometimes it looked as though he jumped up before bringing the cane down with all of his might. He really did cause hurt, and whether it was three or six strokes, if you flinched and pulled your hand away, he would start again. Our hands were badly bruised and hurt for days. Looking back on it, even though we had difficulty holding our pen or pencil, nobody seemed to care. There was no help from the teachers. As far as they were concerned, we were ways out of control, and deserved what we got. In fact, even knowing our punishment, they would report us, especially when some of the boys took an instant dislike to us and made trouble. They would tell tales on us to the teacher.